Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your guest host, Seth Shostak, and I'm a senior astronomer here at the SETI Institute in California. We look for life in space. And my co host for today's show, Eugene Merman, well known to listeners to Star Talk All Stars. Welcome, Eugene. Great to be here. Thank you. You're going to help us look for those aliens? I will, absolutely. (laughs) Well, we're going to talk today about a subject that everybody has an opinion upon. This is not something that is uh, either apparently esoteric or uh, or something that people are indifferent to, and that is the subject of climate and climate change. As I say, everybody thinks they know whether this is happening or what they're going to do about it, if anything. But today we have somebody who actually earns a living doing this. He tells me it's a wonderful living. And that's Ken Caldera. Ken is senior climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science on the campus of nearby Stanford University. Ken, welcome to Star Talk All Stars. Hi, Seth. All right. Well, look, let, let's get right into this because, you know, there are people out there who are not sure whether climate change really is the real deal or, you know, it's all an illusion of some sort or maybe even a hoax. But, you know, what, what about it? Well, climate's certainly changing. The planet's substantially warmer today than it was uh, 100 years ago, and it's getting warmer. Okay. Is that by a, because of a cycle caused by the Industrial Revolution? <laughs> I don't know if it's a cycle, but it's, uh, it's thought that most of that warming is due to emissions that resulted from the Industrial Revolution. And, and that's mostly what? Carbon dioxide? Carbon right? dioxide gas. Okay, yes. now that's a freshman physics problem, right? You, you know, you fill a room with carbon dioxide, you let in some sunlight, the sunlight comes down, it heats up the carpet, and then that re-radiates, what, infrared? I mean, this is freshman physics, right? There's no doubt that carbon dioxide... Earth is hot because of hot carpets? Yes, yes. Sounds right. fair. Are you trying to pull the rug out of this uh, <laughs> argument? You know, I mean, is there, there's no question about this physics, right? Yes, it's well known that Venus is very warm because its atmosphere is full of carbon dioxide and that one of the reasons why Mars is colder is because there's not much carbon dioxide in its atmosphere. And so, to explain planetary climates, it's well established that carbon dioxide is a key greenhouse gas. Okay, so, I mean, you, you can't argue with the fact that we are putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. I think, like, one molecule out of every, what, 2,500 these days in the air is carbon dioxide. We're putting more in. How could you have anything other than climate change? Yeah, the hard part for climate scientists or carbon cycle scientists is to understand why the carbon dioxide isn't accumulating in the atmosphere even faster than it is because only about half of the carbon dioxide we emit each year is showing up in the atmosphere and the other half is going somewhere else. Wait, so it's one particle in 2,500? And what what was it? Is that true? Is that the, I, I hope it's true. It's 400 parts per million or something, right? Yeah, it's 0.04%, 400 parts per million. And so what was it, say, 400 years ago? It was uh, below, uh, it's increased, it used to be 280 parts per million, and now it's around 400 parts per million. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it, gone up. If, right. if you look at the graph of the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, right, it, it, it looks like my stock investments don't look. I mean, you know, it's just a relentlessly increasing curve. That is true. Well, it doesn't. It, there are little wiggles, 
each year because in the northern hemisphere spring all the plants breathe in some carbon dioxide and that pulls the concentration down a little bit and then in the autumn uh, when the leaves are falling to the ground that that uh, res- respiration adds carbon dioxide to the atmosphere so there are little wiggles on top of this uh, century scale is, is one trend. way then to save the planet is to destroy fall some people have proposed trying to slow climate change by increasing the growth rate of trees and other plants to bring in some of this carbon dioxide, and that's a good thing to do, but it really can't be done. What's the point. amount of, like, say, rainforest we would need to do to actually have a real impact? Like, would it well, be, like... If, if we had a few additional planets worth of rainforest... Meaning uh, you'd need, like, another one or two Earths of rainforest. That might do the job. Yeah, that, that sounds like a sounds, lot of rainforest. That's excessive. A lot of rainforest. Uh, well, <laughs> okay. Okay. So why look? If, if people ask you, and I suspect they ask you this all the time as you're sitting on the bus going to work, uh, you know, do, is, is do you it, have a sign that says "Ask me about the climate"? Yeah, yeah. Well, he has little lapel pins, uh, and, and they ask you, "Come on, is it is it real, or is this some sort of hoax, or is this just an attempt to des- destroy the mining uh, mining industry or the oil industry?" What, what do you tell them? Well, sometimes I've been on panels with different people who don't believe in climate change or think we shouldn't do anything about it. And and I advise them, I said, look, don't argue against the science of climate change. Argue that, oh, it's something we can deal with because the science of climate change is so well established that you end up just looking ignorant, arguing against it. And so better to accept the science and really the, more of the uncertainty is on how will human and social systems deal with it. But the basic idea that you add more greenhouse gases, more carbon dioxide to the planet, the planet heats up, that's pretty well established. All right. So, and are they happy that you give them this answer? Do they say, you know, you changed my mind? Uh, unfortunately, not. Sometimes if you're having lunch with one of these people, say by the end of lunch, they're agreeing with you, and then an hour later, you're on the panel with them, and they're back to saying the same thing. So, I have a question. How often is the person who disagrees at all really informed in the interdisciplinary world of climate science? Like, how often is there an actual person who has... Anywhere near roughly the same amount of information that a scientist would actually have. Does that ever happen? Well, there are a bunch of people who have these kind of factoids that they keep on trotting out. I mean, an example of this factoid is when you... We're increasing the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere now. And all our model projections and understanding of geochemistry and so on tells us that thousands of years into the future, the planet will still be substantially warmer than it is now. But there are some people who, that an individual molecule of CO2 will get absorbed by a plant or by the oceans and then come back out in about six or seven years. Mm -hmm. And so, for one, then they'll say, oh, well, we know a molecule only stays in the atmosphere six or seven years, so what's the problem? And you say, well, yeah, but the elevated concentrations will stay high for many thousands of years. And so they have these kind of factoids that they bring up. But is anyone ever like a full, like, are there significant... Because people, yeah, they have these factoids and they quote stuff, but are they ever really an actual scientist or are they more just, like, I could have a factoid, but I'm just a, I'm a comic. Yeah, some of them are scientists in something, you know, so like, oh. I have a degree in, in something, you know, <laughs> like I'm a... Like a degree in shoes or biology. And, and then you say, okay, I'm a scientist and I should know. And so, yeah, not, not a degree in Celsius or something like that. Well, what about, I mean, do you ever point them to things that, you know, appear in the news? Like recently, there's this long, I don't know what it is, 3,300-mile-long crack 
in the Larson Sea ice shelf. Now, probably not many listeners have ever visited the Larson Sea ice shelf, but it's down there in the Antarctic Peninsula. And if that breaks off, you've got a chunk of ice melting in the ocean that's bigger than some of these states in this country. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going on that's unprecedented. And one of the problems is that climate evolves over many thousands of years and, and you know, human lives are typically less than a century. And so we, to us, we don't see the, the, these changes. And, and you know, so we don't know, oh, are these ice sheets breaking off? Is that a normal thing that happens all the time? And it's only the geologists and the paleoclimatologists who spend the time studying what happened in Earth's ancient past who can see that, oh, what's happening today is really unusual. I don't want you to script a disaster film, but if, suppose that big ice sheet breaks off. I mean, you're talking about thousands of square miles of ice. I don't know how thick it is, but it's probably, you know, it's feet thick at least, right? So, so what happens when that, that melts into the ocean? I mean, you know, does, is that the end of Miami Beach? Well, we can only hope. That, that individual <laughs> uh, ice sheet won't... Uh, do that much in terms of making a substantial sea level rise. But there was a study recently, and this is a mechanism that wasn't understood before, but when you have an ice cliff at the end of an ice shelf and a piece of that ice cliff breaks off, that leaves an even bigger cliff and that's unstable. And so th there's now an understanding that big ice shelves can collapse very quickly. And this has been seen in parts of Antarctica already. And so there's potential for, you know, well over 10 feet of uh, sea level rise this century. Really? Uh, how, wait, so how realistic do you find the w movie Waterworld? Is it more realistic than I thought up until right now? Well, I, you know, I have to say the central expectation for sea level rise this century is still a couple of feet. But we did a study looking at what effects of, of uh, continued CO2 emissions would be on the Antarctic ice sheet and projected that on average sea level will be rising about an inch a year for the next, uh, you know, couple of thousand years. And so, you know, an inch a year is, uh, you know, that's like 10 feet a decade. And that's a pretty healthy so, pace. It's not going to ha happen so much this century, likely, but in the next centuries, the idea that sea level rises ten would feet like a decade. Minnesota become pretty good oceanfront property. Like how? Like no, you lose most of Florida. You lose. Okay, so far I can live with this. What else? How's Rhode Island? How are how, uh, well, how's Rhode Cape Island's Cod? probably yeah. Cape Cod's probably largely gone. I, I'm not sure uh. the details of the topography, but you know, basically, if you're within, there's enough water locked up in the. the ice sheets to raise sea level almost 200 feet. Now, it's going to take, you know, something like five or 10,000 years to get there. But, oh, that's, but, that's but, very comforting. But the prospect, if we continue burning CO2 the way we are, is something like 200 feet. Okay, now, uh, you know, for somebody living in Minnesota, as Eugene apparently wants to do. Uh, no, yeah. I mean, in 5,000 years of its oceanfront. But no, my, my house I have is a, a lot of other problems to solve before it's that. It's almost lakefront. No, my house is actually around 300 feet off. The you're, you're all so, so I'm okay, but... Uh, you know, I used to live in Holland, and I, I realized that in case the dikes broke... The, the lower floor of my apartment was going to be gone, but I'd be okay in the bedroom. I, you know, if you're talking a couple of hundred feet... The I, Venice I, of Holland. Yes. <laughs> you're, if you're talking a couple of hundred feet, well, something like 90% of all the population of the world lives, you know, at elevations less than 900 feet. They're all in coastal cities, right? I mean, this is, this is not a small effect if it happens. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've seen this a little bit already with Katrina, that you can start building dikes around cities, but you're not going to build dikes that are 100 feet high and 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 uh, you know so eventually we're going to have to do retreat and we we recently published a paper on thinking of climate change 
not as an amount of change, but as a rate of change. So we shouldn't be thinking, if, if we don't stop using the sky as a waste dump for our CO2 pollution, that climate's going to keep changing for a long time. And, and so it's not like that you can move back from the coast and think, okay, now we're safe, unless you really move pretty far back, is that You can levels, live in mountains, or, yeah, or America yeah, would become back, a series but, of super but, weird islands. But, but basically, there's going to be this process of coastal retreat going on. Okay, you know, all of this is pretty, you know, this is a pretty sunny picture you uh, kind of paint there, Ken. But, of course, people realize you're not the first one to say some of this stuff, so, you know, we, we're trying to do something about it. There are international conferences and so forth. Now, there is a question of what if the United States, for whatever reason, I can't think of too many, uh, were to pull back from some of these international agreements and say, what the heck? Burn, baby, burn. We're just going to, you know, dig that coal out of the ground. It's a wasted resource sitting there under Ohio, West Virginia, wherever. And, 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 and Berta, does that make any difference? Does the U.S. actually make any difference in all this? Well, now we're getting towards closer to politics, and the U.S. makes a big difference in terms of leadership. We've been emitting more or less a quarter of the greenhouse gas emissions, but as China and other countries develop, the American share is getting smaller and smaller. And, and so if the rest of the world develops around coal and oil and gas... Even if we went to zero, we'd still be in trouble. But there's this idea of political leadership that if the big countries decide that, well, we're going to transform our energy systems into cleaner, more environmentally friendly energy systems, that then the rest of the world can hopefully follow. So how much harm, this is just a for instance, say there was somebody who was going to maybe harm the earth for the next four years. How much harm would that create and how reversible would it be to, basically, how would it be if we, for the next four years, live like it's the 1800s, but then really kick back into modern times uh, in four years? Um, well, each year, of, I guess there's two different questions. And uh, one is just the emissions that happen in those four years. But in those four years, if we build a bunch of coal plants, coal plants typically last for 75 years or so. And so are we going to be building all this infrastructure that you're then going to dismantle at the end of this four that's, years? That's or? my plan, yes. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't well, go this way, yeah. but that is what I'm, what I'm suggesting. Well, I mean, in the best possible scenario of not doing anything for four years, we kind of just delay everything by four years and it's not so yeah. bad. But if, if as a result of that, like everybody else decides how we're, we're all not going to do anything and we're yeah. all going to build coal plants and you know and just sort of derail the whole path. I mean, what I guess one of the things you can think of that we're on a could be on a path to having an energy system that doesn't re- release its carbon dioxide to the atmosphere or we could be on a path to another kind of right. energy system and the further we go down the wrong path, the harder it is to get on the other okay, path. Okay, but what about the optimistic point of view? Suppose we just, you know, turned off all the emitting sources tomorrow. Everybody, you know, they walk to work. <laughs> this is an impossible scenario, but, you know, they walk to work, all the coal plants turn off, the even the natural gas plants turn off, the, you know, all of them. But we still keep fracking, right? You know, you can dig it out of the ground as long as you don't burn it. Okay, so... <laughs> I suppose we did that. I mean, this is, you know, just the limiting situation where we just turned it all off tomorrow and became, you know, the halos developed over our heads, whatever. Uh, how much longer would the average world temperature keep going up? Because it wouldn't start going down. No. Ba- basically, each carbon dioxide emission adds another increment of warming to the planet. And that warming stays at about the same level for a few hundred years, but then 
it takes many thousands of years for it to sort of cool down from that after that. And so if we did your scenario of stopping emitting everything today, it wouldn't get substantially warmer than now, but it would take thousands of years to return back to where it was a few centuries ago. Unless we came up with a technology that removed CO2 from the atmosphere? Yes. Or, or, or planted two planets worth of trees. <laughs> yeah, and there are other... We could either remove the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere or there's uh, sketchier kinds of proposals to reflect sunlight away from the Earth as yeah, well. Yeah, well, well Wait, words, go... What? There is? Yeah, well, how about a giant sunshade in orbit? How about that? Is that New Gingrich's idea? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it feels like something the, he'd suggest. The, there, there have been proposals to put uh, giant satellites between the Earth and the Sun at the L1 point, which is this gravitationally... Uh, neutral point between the Earth and the Sun, or, or or put particles in the stratosphere or in low Earth orbit. And we've done model simulations of this, and uh, almost, uh, you know, it almost works too well in the models, unfortunately. Well, you mean it drives us the other way? No, uh, that uh, you can, in the models at least, cool the Earth down fairly rapidly and get a climate that looks similar to what it did before we started altering Earth's atmosphere. And it feels it's just, like there's a but. Yeah, well, the but is it's one thing to do it in a model where if something goes wrong, you just yeah. uh, restart the code. Is, is this like using a hydrogen bomb to stop a hurricane? Where, like, you do stop the hurricane, but maybe you have some other problems? Th- that's exactly well, it. What might those be? Well, wait a minute, Ken. So, in other words, uh, even if we did everything we could do, this problem is going to be here for a while. I mean... It, yeah, but you know, we say problem. There are some good parts of CO two which people sometimes don't talk about. I mean, plants grow better in high CO two atmospheres. Also, we're already living from the equator to the Arctic Circle, and so humans are pretty adaptable. But these changes are coming a lot faster. Okay, than Canada's Northwest Territories might benefit from all this. Uh, we're going to continue. Well, not just... from when we take them over. <laughs> we're we're going to you know this 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 room is getting warmer as I sit here. We'll be right back with more Star Talk. All stars with our guests, Ken Caldera, Eugene Merman, and your host, Seth Shostak. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. We have Eugene Merman, my co-host. We have Ken Kaldirev from uh, Stanford, who uh, is a climate scientist, and I'm your host Seth Shostak from the lovely, glamorous SETI Institute. Uh, and by the way, we are broadcasting this episode from the studios of the SETI Institute. All right, now Ken, look, you've sort of outlined, you know, the, the, all the bad news about climate change. But doggone it, you know, people are thinking, well, what about all those windmills and the solar cells on the roof of my neighbor that, you know, bring about neighborhood blight or whatever? Uh, well, what about it? Are we making some progress here? And can this sort of thing, you know, solve the problem? First of all, let me just say that I only spoke about some of the bad news, not all of the bad news. Oh. But, but in, in terms of uh, what we could do about it, the, centri- the, the two main sources of carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere are, are our energy system, mostly the burning of coal, oil, and gas, and then the cutting down of forests. The uh, 
there are plenty of good replacements for coal, oil, and gas, and we can also use the coal and gas in ways that don't pollute the atmosphere. What are some ways you can use it without polluting the atmosphere? You mean like as a cream on your hands? No, people have talked about this idea of carbon capture and storage, that you could burn, say, coal in a power plant, but then grab the CO2 out of the smokestack and stuff it underground in geologic reservoirs. So basically, you take the carbon out of the ground, you burn it, and then put that carbon back underground. Is that safe or dangerous? Is that a realistic thing, or is that something like a kid suggested? Well, it's realistic, but it has the same kind of properties that fracking has, and that you are stuffing things underground, and, you know, that's yeah, but not... fracking a, in reverse. Is it what a canifrac, or is are it you, a canifrac, or a far for something? Uh, is, anyway, are you putting something poisonous in the ground? No, well, no, I mean, it... Well, you don't want too high concentrations of CO2. It's a little bit, uh, you know, it, it, it's not... Well, what about the oceans? Isn't the, the majority of all the CO2 in the oceans? Why don't you just pipe it into the ocean? Well, the problem with putting carbon dioxide in the oceans is that increases the acidity of the oceans, and that's bad for many marine organisms. Are we seeing that already? Yeah, we've done uh, work in Australia in the Great Barrier Reef, and for the first time we did an experiment where we put CO2 into a plume of seawater and let it drift over a, a coral reef, and we've shown that this uh, CO2 slows coral growth and then used that data and other data in model projections to uh, which show or at least what I believe is that within a few decades if we continue our current emissions there'll be no place left on the earth where with the kind of chemistry of seawater that can support coral reef growth. But, but let me push back on that just a little bit because you now we're talking about acidification of the oceans. It's a lot of Latin in there and I think that that's something that for a lot of people is about as clear as tensor calculus. All right, so suppose we do lose some coral in the sea. I mean, we lost all the trilobites hundreds of millions of years ago. Nobody seems to care. I, mean, I care. <laughs> they were my favorite food. And no. your ancestors, or maybe not. What, 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 about, what about this? I mean, what, what, what's the consequence down there? Well, I think there's at least two different uh, kinds of things. I mean, there's you know people who depend on coral reefs for fishing and... Uh, and you know tourism and so on, and then there's lots of marine species. Uh, some think up up to nearly half of all species spending part of their life cycle in, in coral reefs, and so there's a threat to biodiversity. But there's also this kind of uh, you know canary in the coal mine aspect to it. If coral reefs have been around for hundreds of millions of years, then all of a sudden we show up on the scene, and something that's survived for hundreds of millions of years can no longer make it on this planet. You know, that might be some kind of wake-up call that maybe... Sounds uh, like a perfectly natural cycle where humans <laughs> kill everything in the ocean. At least we know where Eugene stands on this. I mean, <laughs> Just, but, but, but really, I mean, you, you, I mean, he's got a point because you're asking for personal sacrifice here. And you yourself have argued that maybe this just fights against human nature, right? I mean, in, in, uh, our, our nature is nature. It's not nurture, right? We're kind of hardwired to be kind of selfish. And actually, you make an example of this in something you wrote about the coffee pot in the office. Maybe you could briefly uh, summarize that argument because it just, yeah. I thought it just defined the whole thing. Yeah, we, in my office, uh, you know, we're full of people who say that oh, we're all going to work together to solve the climate change problem. And we can't even work together to keep our coffee pot full of a drinkable cup of coffee and so as it runs down you're, you're supposed to remake the, the last person's supposed to make the coffee pot and as it starts running down people start taking half cups of coffee and you know and it ends up being this kind of sludge that's well, what if you said that if you don't refill the coffee all your fish will die maybe people would definitely be like you know what 
I'm going to make some more coffee. Well, we've thought of taking the, you know, there's an old National Lampoon cover of like, buy this magazine or we'll kill this dog. And we were thinking like, oh, we should just say, like, if this coffee runs out, we'll just kill this dog. And maybe that would do yeah, it. Yeah, but, but, but that's using a whip rather than an <laughs> inducement, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, but to get back to the, the other question about yeah, sorry what to we go do down with the... energy, <laughs> down that rabbit hole, the. Um, Apologies to yeah, the dogs. Yeah, the, there have been a number of studies now that show that. We could reduce around 80% of the carbon dioxide emissions from the electric sector with wind and solar power, and that we can then electrify much of the rest of the economy. And so, and this also, it's controversial, but some people think that nuclear power could be made cheap and affordable. And then there's these ideas of using carbon capture and storage. We see electric cars coming in. And, and, and so there's a whole range of technology options, and these options are getting much cheaper. And, and so it, it's seeming increasingly technically feasible to have a good productive economy and sustain economic yeah, But growth. all you're saying is it's becoming easier and easier to be a good kid. But what's the incentive for the kid? Well, this is the problem. It's a collective action problem in that, you know, if... if uh, if you have a lump of coal and you know you're cold somewhere, then you know you'll have incentive to burn this lump of coal. And the, if you don't burn it, well, people all around the world will benefit, and people for thousands of years into the future will benefit. And this this is the fundamental uh, problem of climate change. I think if there were really one sort of benevolent dictator of the world, then we would just solve the maybe, problem right away. Maybe it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> that, that uh, you know, if there were... But, but I think where you have lots of people each acting in their own self-interest is really hard, and which is why people suggest, well, we need to have regulations about how, how about much... carbon tax? But, but also, carbon tax, these kind if, of if these alternative sources of energy become basically just as viable and, and profitable, I mean, is really partially the answer that just solar has to be more profitable... Like humans won't help themselves until it's profitable to, and that, easy. Uh, I mean, there's a number of people. I, I mean, Google had a project, and Bill Gates has been trying to do this. Can we, with innovation, try to bring down the costs of clean energy technologies? Yeah. And if you could eventually make a clean energy technology cheaper than coal and natural gas, well, then that would just take off on its own. That's a pretty optimistic view. Well, oh. well but, is it? Because they say that. Uh, these days, you know, the cost of solar panels has gone down quite a bit. And that, in fact, uh, as a homeowner, at least, it might be cheaper for you to put those panels on the roof than to buy it from the, you know, the local utility department. Yeah, the the electricity, the difference between electricity from a coal plant and electricity from a solar panel is you can get electricity from the coal plant at night. <laughs> and And... Batteries are still super expensive, and, and it's really so. We need it, more awesome batteries. Yeah, no. If we had awesome batteries, as you say, then doing this uh, energy system transition uh, would be much easier. I have a postdoc working on this issue, and basically, with today, we should get a second person. We, yeah, that, <laughs> we, 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 we could have more than one person yeah. working on this. But no, if imagine we, two no, but, people working yeah, on this. So we might crisis. actually solve the problem. No, but actually, this is one of the issues that this is sort of you know, there's this huge giant global problem, and it's like you know. Potentially trillions of dollars a year spent to solve. Has anyone it. emailed Energizer? And, and uh, you know, and then there, it's being worked on on kind of shoestring now, budgets. It, well, but, well, let me ask you this because you know you see it with cars. You know, they have limited range. The electric cars. And it's all batteries. It's all batteries. So, if you, I mean, if you, for example, doubled 
the efficiency, the capability of batteries. Just double it. Not, not improve it by 10 times, but if you just doubled it, would, would that make the difference, yeah. or do you have to do well, orders of magnitude? No, this is that? it. You know, like right now, batteries, the measure, like how much does it cost per kilowatt hour batteries, right. and right now it's something like $400, and you oh, know, there's a study. Oh, close. And there's a study that if it was like a dollar, then, you know, then the renewables could take I, I can buy it from the PowerPoint for so 20 cents, So it needs cents, to be right? yeah, yeah, 400 yeah. times better? Yeah. You, and you have of, a guy it, working on this. Maybe if they would be 100, we know he's not working on the battery, he's doing just the analysis. But, you know, basically if batteries got 100 All right, times forget cheaper, that approach. Let's yeah. try some other approach. No, I no, have, no, no. Wait, done. what's the actual, is it if batteries got 100 times uh, better? Yeah, 100 times better, we'd be in good shape. I mean, even if they got 10 so times, five, 5 times better, anything. So that's I mean, actually not unreasonable. What do you think in the next, like, 50 or 100 years? Yeah, the problem with this is, I don't want to get too technical, but each, I do. But, you know, lithium is already a pretty light uh, ion, and each ion can only have so much charge, and so there's not that much scope to get that much better yeah. than where we are today. Yeah. The um, Oh, meaning we might be actually at the limit of the ability of a battery as we understand it. We'd have to understand batteries in a new way. I think you need an entirely new kind of battery. Instead of st storing it as, you know, the, the position of electrons in there somewhere. Maybe we could store it in else. human babies. People would probably go for that. But the, the other... The other like side soil, of it is soylent that green. The, the <laughs> other side is that it doesn't really, uh, you know, it's easier to be good when being good is cheap, and so that you know, it might even if it's a little bit more expensive, people might be willing to pay a little bit more to have a, a better energy. Like they're system. willing to recycle their garbage. Kind yeah, of so people are willing to do a little bit; they're just not willing to do a lot. Right. So if you can make it cheaper, people. I, I gotta it. say, Ken, I made a calculation a couple of years ago. Just you know, probably wrong, but. I, and I worked out what would happen if you painted all the highways in the United States white, right? Because they're you know, they're mostly macadam, they're you know whatever, and you know they they don't reflect much of the sunlight back up into space, right? They they just absorb it, heat up, and contribute to global warming. And I worked out how many you know how much energy you would save uh, in the Earth's atmosphere if you just painted all the highways white, white, and it turned out to be enough to stop the melting of Greenland. Um, you don't have to comment on that. I just thought you might want to go out and paint. The, you know, the, yeah. the driveway white. So, so if we maybe got a few other countries to join in our, our <laughs> freeway painting exercise? Yeah, we've done calculations, and freeway painting is just not anywhere It's not on? Enough. Okay. It's not we'll put a lot of people enough. into work. What I, if France also joined us? Well, <laughs> But there's the same idea. I mean, there's this idea of putting particles in the stratosphere to reflect sunlight, and that seems feasible, but the painting of the surfaces... Here's the obvious solution. And people have been saying this for at least 30 or 40 years, right? We just put up satellites that have a lot of solar cells, right? And they, they collect sunlight in orbit there, right? Convert it into electricity and then beam that electricity down to some antenna farm in New Mexico or something on a on microwave. It's totally harmless. And then distribute it with wires around the country. You don't burn anything. Free energy, after the capital cost, free energy forever. Don't burn anything. Don't put anything in the atmosphere. Why aren't we doing that? I don't know. Exxon well, would probably love that plan if you told them that they could be a totally non-profitable company <laughs> the, <laughs> with just uh, an expenditure of capital. Putting the satellite in space uh, gets you something like a factor of four by the time you get transmission losses than having the solar panels on Earth. Another approach to... You are really an energy buzzkill. Uh, another <laughs> approach to doing the same thing is to get a global electric grid. And Buckminster Fuller actually proposed this, that you have a grid so that you could have the solar cells on the day side of the planet wheeling energy over to the night side of the planet. Yeah, yeah. And that's, high, high voltage wires going yeah. everywhere. And that's probably more feasible than the solar power satellites. But I have friends that are big fans of solar power satellites. Oh, well, I'll, I'll disinvest. <laughs> yeah, once I'm sure that maybe in conjunction with ISIS we can, get, we can do this.
Okay, so uh, what, what, do you, what do you tell your, your neighbors to do? Because they're all a bunch of individuals. It's, it's one thing to tell the local utility company, you know, stop burning that coal. Uh, I, I tell my neighbors to vote for politicians who will put good uh, climate policy into action. Yeah, and are they doing that? I hope they are. In San Francisco, yeah, his neighbors are doing that. (laughs) Hey, at what point, Ken, do we go beyond this puny, paltry climate change we're going through now, which maybe in the future will look like, you know, just a nothing problem, a bump in the road? Uh, How far do we have to go before we really disrupt the planet? I mean, you've mentioned Venus, uh, you know, too hot, greenhouse (laughs) effect gone completely nuts, or Mars, the opposite problem is, you know, it's minus 50 degrees on a warm summer day. I mean, you know, if, if you put enough energy into our atmosphere, whether you put the pollutants or not. You just put enough energy, just have enough machinery going. Does that kill the climate forever? The, I mean, even if you boil the oceans, they would condense back out and the climate would ultimately recover from it. But it, the, when you say, when do things really start getting bad? There, in warm times in Earth's past, there were no large animals in the tropics because warm-blooded animals generate heat and we need to radiate that heat off. And, you know, if, if the, the outside temperature is warmer and even with your sweat you can't cool yourself down, you basically can't survive. And there's some projections that under, you know, business-as-usual climate change scenarios, parts of the tropics will be basically become uninhabitable for large mammals. It would do sort of like the time of the dinosaurs down in the... And large mammals yeah. counting people? or Yeah, or large mammals counting yeah. people. The, yeah. I mean, Not just bears. We say about time of the dinosaurs, I mean, basically what we're, a lot of this carbon went into the ground at the time of the dinosaurs, and more or less what we're doing is recreating the atmosphere and the climate of what it was when the dinosaurs were around. Yeah, so that part is fun. Yeah, it's just sort of like Jurassic Park yeah. without the dinosaurs. Well, yeah, but of course that may be coming too. We'll just uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> genetically re-engineer the dinos and uh, they'll be happy and uh, we can just uh, retire somewhere to the poles. Something I mean, like that. A, a big question is how adaptable are human civilizations and societies and how much... Uh, well, is the risk that we would basically destroy civilization as we understand it, but some people would stick around? Like meaning we'd kill billions of people. Let's hold off on that one for a second. (laughs) We won't kill them yet. Well, listen, we're having an interesting discussion, if occasionally disconcerting, with Ken Caldera, climate scientist, and my co-host, Eugene Milmer. Sorry, Merman. I, Merman. I prefer yeah, that one. Yeah, I have that guy's good, Bill but Mark. yeah, no, it's Merman, Eugene Merman. How could I go wrong? I'm Seth Shostak, and we'll be right back to tell you about not the weather, but climate. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. We're talking climate change with Ken Caldera, our special guest. My co-host is Eugene Merman. I'm Seth Shostak, astronomer. You're at the SETI Institute, and Eugene, you have uh, culled some incisive questions here for Ken. Maybe yes. Him, so first, I wanted to ask. So what is? So what's the the disaster scenarios? Is it that billions of people die? Is it that where, where can people live? So you probably can't live in Arizona, but can you live in northern Canada? Where would humanity be? There are um, some projections that places like Siberia and northern Canada will get better to live. Uh, The tropics could get pretty nasty. Of course, Houston 
and Miami would be pretty nasty if you didn't have air conditioning to go inside. Well, but they're going to so, be underwater, right? Yeah. <laughs> so depending on you know how technology is, but it's uh, you know the tropics will get pretty nasty. The high latitude regions will probably. How many people? Be. So how many people? Would do you, like would bil- billions of people would perish? Is that the uh, idea? I mean, or uh, it really depends on how human systems respond to it. I mean, there have been studies of what's going on in Syria, and Syria has been in a great drought recently, and and that drought has been associated with climate change. And so this question of as climate change progresses. And, you know, that, that basically the places that are nice to live don't have so many wars. Wars and and conflict tend to happen in places that are not so pleasant to live in anyway. And so you know, this question of how much will climate change induce, you know, mass migrations. We've seen this issue of migration into Europe. So, you know, there's a question of how will social systems respond. If, there, if we work together for the common good, then right. we could take care of the people who are disadvantaged and nobody would need to be harmed. But if we could work together for the common good, we wouldn't have the climate problem. Well, we have, right. we wouldn't have a lot of other problems. Right, right. But, but have you seen, uh, I think that they've commissioned some artwork in the UK showing what happens if we don't pay attention to climate change. And I remember one of the illustrations, they're done in a very realistic style, shows you know the area around Trafalgar Square there in London when all the people from the continent of Europe, or at least you know the southern part of the continent, have all moved to Britain because the climate has become untenable. And you just see it looks like a refugee camp. That's yeah. what downtown London looked like. We're engaged in a study now trying to quantify these migration effects. And I can't go into all the details of how we're trying to do it, but it looks like the idea that a billion people could be motivated to move as a result of climate change is not unreasonable. Not well, they could be motivated yeah. to move, but there would probably be a, mo- a war. Well, the question is then when a billion people show up at your doorstep, you know, are you, are you going to welcome them in, and what's the political consequences of that? I'm just going to say if the number is one billion, the answer vaguely is no. Yes. I mean, or some people would love to, but I, but I, but I find it unlikely. It's like Halloween without enough candy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And that's what they'll say. We are one billion people who would like Snickers immediately. <laughs> Your Snickers. Go ahead, Eugene. So here's questions from uh, people who have written in. Uh, The first one is from a Patreon uh, contributor. Her name is uh, Renee Douglas. Renee Douglas from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Can weather ever be so extreme that it actually tears the planet or celestial body apart like it did in the movie The NeverEnding Story? No, uh, weather can't get that bad. Uh, with the you know weather, I mean the, the, the weather we see. I mean weather can can't tear mountains or planets. Meaning, there's no hurricane that would destroy a mountain. You can have hurricanes destroy cities, right? But not mountains. mountains. And yeah. and yeah, it'd have to be some like it'd have to be an asteroid from outer space. Uh, it, even yeah. that. Look, the biggest <laughs> the biggest catastrophe, if I can use that word, disaster. I want to yeah, use that and, word. And <laughs> maybe this is a good time to jump in and just say the relationship between weather and climate, and that weather, you know, climate is what you expect, and weather is what you get. And so, climate is the statistics or the averages of of weather. And so, there's still all this variability. As the planet warms, I was on Fox News once. You know, they had they was on a climate whipping boy whenever there's a snowstorm, saying, "Where's your climate change now?" And uh, and I was on there, and you know, and you know, there's some evidence that 
as the planet warms, the, the air masses from the tropics can head up further to the north, but also the air masses from the Arctic can sometimes go further to the south. And so sometimes you get these cold spells, and that's associated with the climate change and global warming. And it seems counterintuitive that you could have a cold spell well, listen, the weather becomes more extreme in general. So it'll be both at times, weather at times will be hotter and colder. Yeah. But overall, we expect it to get hotter. But similarly, Sorry, the I climate mean change. Specific, yeah. yeah, but similarly, the general trend is for dry places to get drier and wet places to get wetter. And so it also seems confusing to people when you say, oh, okay, this drought is due to climate change, and then there's a flood, and they say, oh, that's due to climate change. And I mean, sometimes these are just natural variability, and it's not due to climate I, change. I just want to come back very briefly okay. to what you were saying. The, the biggest uh, disaster that ever affected the Earth was the. Uh, the formation of the moon, when it was something the size of Mars slammed into the Earth. But the Earth's still here, so it takes a lot to get yeah. rid of the Earth. It's, it's not easy. For my PhD, it's a real project. For my PhD dissertation, I studied when you know, an asteroid or something slammed into the Earth and caused the extinction of the dinosaurs and what happened to the carbon cycle and climate after that. And, and you know, eventually the Earth recovered from that. And you know, to me, we're kind of like another comet or asteroid hitting the Earth. Yeah, in other words, there will be recovery, but it'll be something that'll be studied by scientists 10,000, I mean, I should say 66 million years from now. <laughs> Let's go to another question. All right, so yeah. Jenny from New York on Facebook asks, the nuclear power plant in Fukushima is still leaking. After so long, what is the impact on the ocean life, the people of the Pacific, and the animals around the coast? Uh, can the wildlife be saved? The Most of the effects of Fukushima are extremely local. That I mean, there's some concern about, oh, that some of these radionuclides have been showing up on the west coast of the U.S., but the only reason they're detectable is because the instruments that scientists now have to measure this stuff is so good, and so there's no health hazard, uh, say, here from Fukushima. I'm not sure exactly if, you know, if you go right taking a swim right where that water is going into the Meaning ocean might not be a good idea. swim right near the nuclear but, but power. I, but I think by the time, you know, you're some distance from it, there's uh, relatively little risk. Okay. Eric uh, on Facebook from Charlotte, North Carolina asks, uh, what's the most exciting frontier in science for you today? What's the most exciting discovery in your opinion in the last one or two years? See, that, that's a tough one. The... Uh, and maybe climate-related. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things, I have some people coming to me wanting to study climate science, and I tell them, look, really, it's a solved problem. We've Most of climate science was pretty well-established several decades ago, probably by the 1970s, it was pretty much well-established. And really, the exciting stuff is in the solutions right now of, you know, how do you make those better batteries that are 100 times cheaper, or how do you make those wind turbines or those power lines that go across the whole globe. And so I, th I think the exciting stuff is in the solutions right now and that we have the problem fairly well diagnosed. Well, what about the detection of gravitational waves that obviously had no pull on you? No? Okay. <laughs> Didn't find it attractive. All right. Um, Travis Porter from Facebook asks, uh, what are some of the most... Uh, what are some of the more effective methods we could theoretically employ to remove excess CO2 from the atmosphere? The simplest one, as you alluded to before, is just to plant a tree because trees take up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And the problem is that we're just emitting so much carbon dioxide that there's no way to plant it's, up enough trees. And it's true that if we literally doubled the amount of trees on Earth, it would be 
How much have we cut down? Have we cut down so much that you'd have to literally triple, quadruple? Or Yeah, does it make sense to say plant a tree if everybody planted a tree? You had six or seven billion new trees next week. Would that matter? Or, the, or, if you had, or yeah, how the, many the do you need? The total amount of trees we've cut down, you know, in the history of humanity is equal to something. I, I don't know if I have the number in my head, but it's something like 20 years worth of our recent emissions. And so... You know, if you grew back every tree that was ever cut down, you might delay climate change by a decade or two or something like that, but it wouldn't be enough to solve the overall problem. But there there are um, chemical ways. We know that if you put, uh, um, you know, like lye and water together, that that will absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. And so there are chemical ways to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Is that dangerous? Is that something I should do at my house? Uh, well, it would be an industrial technique. Also... Naturally, CO2 is taken out of the atmosphere by reacting with rocks, and that's how the natural Earth system would take it. So, out. if we planted more rocks, no, well, people, the idea would you need to crush up the rocks and do something. With wait, wait, them. wait, wait, wait. Are you saying there's no rational industrial process for just scrubbing the CO2 out of the atmosphere and, as you've said before, maybe just bury it in the ground for somebody to use? You know, ten million years from now. The problem is that carbon dioxide is a very dilute gas in the atmosphere, and it's just a lot easier to avoid making the mess in the first place than to make the mess and then try to clean it up later. It's, it's uh, In other words, it's better not to have a smokestack releasing the CO2 to the atmosphere in the first place. Is it extremely difficult? Do we have the technology to collect CO2 right now? Is it just very yeah. uh, rudimentary? The There are technologies that can remove CO2 from the atmosphere that are working today. It's just that they're expensive. Well, well what about you know just scrubbing the power plants? I mean, that, there, there you have concentrated CO2. Yeah, so. and that works too, and that more or less doubles the price of the electricity. So it's doable. It's just, you know, are we willing to pay for it? San yeah. Francisco is. So, that's, so would that save the earth? It would um, <laughs> save a little bit, but yeah. not, not enough. South uh, San Francisco. Mm. <laughs> well, that's All the right. problem. If it, if it would just save San Francisco, maybe San Francisco would do it. But it, the problem is that, again, it, it's... Does the, the world have an effect on right, itself right, right. all across the globe? Oh, yeah, more questions. Great. Well, Tom Larnard, uh, Tom Larnard from Facebook, from Schenectady, New York, asks, what contributions to climate change with trends showing the global temperature rising are due to Milankovitch cycles. Milankovitch cycles. Milankovitch cycles. I knew I was saying it wrong. Yeah, you, you need to study Russian. Ha, yeah. I know. The, the, I think he was Serbian or something. But anyway, the, uh, <laughs> the, um, yeah, the Milankovitch cycles are these orbital cycles of the tilt of the Earth and the change in the ellipse so that the Earth goes around when it revolves around the sun. And, and these things shift over time and are the pacemakers for the ice ages, so yeah. the wet waxing and waning of the big ice sheets. And, and so 6,000 years ago, there were lakes in the Sahara, and that was due to the change in orbital parameters. And so over thousands of years, these are important, but over the sort of tens or hundreds right. of years, it's just not enough. Meaning more than one thing can affect climate. So 6,000 years ago, these cycles had a big effect. Now we're having a big effect. Yeah, well... Not, not I, now, but meaning yeah, yeah, in but the, conjunction. But our carbon dioxide emissions are a much stronger forcing effect than even these pacemakers of the ice ages. So, oh, I so see. We're, what we're doing now is is 
big time, even viewed from a geologic perspective. You really have to go back to things like the extinction of the dinosaurs to find something, something equivalent. Of, yes, oh, <laughs> that's a treat. Yeah. <laughs> well, you they, can go back. A, well, fifty million years ago, there was another. You know, you could argue thing. that the extinction of the dinosaurs was a good thing because otherwise, we probably wouldn't be here. There well, would be dinosaurs here in California. Well, and and uh, whatever evolves fifty million years from now might uh, say the same thing about yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm trying to think of. You know, what's upside. the, the upside? Yeah, but, you, but, if, but if we were like dinosaurs did it to themselves, then then uh, anyway, they would be upset to know they killed themselves. All right. Well, we uh, we have. Do you have a really quick question there? Because we got sure like, from Twitter. Jeremy Hansen says, with the number of massive hurricanes lately, are they because of global warming or better record keeping? Um, Many of it is, much of it is better weather keeping. Most of the increase in damage is really due to the fact that we're having more expensive infrastructure exposed to the coasts. And and but the worst hurricane in Southern Hemisphere his, history went right over my brother's house who happens to live in Fiji. And I was talking to somebody and it turns out we just haven't measured many hurricanes in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm afraid that we are at the end of uh, this episode of Star Talk All-Stars. And uh, by the way, if you're a listener and you like science, you might uh, consider checking out uh, the SETI Institute's show on science, Big Picture Science, Big Picture. I want to uh, thank my co-host, Eugene Merman, for uh, all those great questions and everything else he had to say. And, of course, our guest expert, Ken Caldera. It's been a real pleasure. Tune in next time. 